So tonight's week four, we've been looking at the three refuges, as you all know. Last couple weeks, several weeks, we've been talking about the Buddha and trying to have a more intuitive sense of this nature of mind, we can say. That Buddha isn't something that we have to create. It's something that we intuit or recognize, and then to the degree we intuit or recognize it, we put it to work. So what is the work of the Buddha? To know Dhamma, to see things as they are. And to really get that sense, as I mentioned in the guided sit tonight, like when is it Mark seeing his experience or knowing his experience, and when is it Buddha seeing Dhamma? And it's almost that, you know, the more you reflect in this way, you really see the difference. And you'll be able to go back and forth where, you know, sort of, you know how it is, even in like when you're in a, in a difficult place with an interaction you're having with someone. And uh, you know how you can, in one moment, really be the victim, for example. And it's like it feels as real as anything feels real. And the story that supports the feeling of being the victim is very clear. And the compulsion coming out of being the victim, whatever it is, to close down or strike back or because victims don't strike back too much. But whatever that victim, that situation might sort of be appropriate within that bubble, it's like it's all there. And then in the next moment, sort of that bubble itself is seen as Dhamma. It's just like something being known. Being the victim is something being known. Everything, all of the factors, all the qualities that are there in that moment aren't confusing. They're just seen as mind-body phenomena that are being known. And there's some obvious freedom. Just as there's obvious contraction or oppression when we're caught up or trapped in being the victim or being the aggressor or whatever particular bubble we might have fallen into, trap we might have gotten caught by. So we want to... It's not so much about like needing to be with Buddha, needing to be Buddha knowing Dhamma, because that's, that's its own little bubble, right? But just notice that there are these two worlds that we can inhabit, so to speak. You know, we can ha- inhabit the world itself and all of the different... That's not, it's not like that's one thing. There's so many different ways that that world expresses itself. But all of the ways it expresses itself has the quality of dukkha. It's stressful. It feels oppressive. And Buddha knowing Dhamma always has the flavor of release to some degree. To whatever degree it's that way. So the Buddha, I think I mentioned this last week, is considered the ultimate subject, and Dhamma then becomes the ultimate object. So when the mind, when wisdom really has been purified, when one's view 
has been purified in a moment, then Buddha, the sort of ultimate subject, is this just there. It's always there, but it's obscured by wrong view. But when wrong view sort of clears up, just like fog you know, can clear up and then it's a clear day. Same thing, wrong view can be very thick and sticky, but it also, if allowed to, will clear up. And there will be right view, or Buddha. It's the luminous nature of the mind doing what it does, seeing things as they are. Like the mirror-like nature of the mind simply reflecting whatever's going on. It's not actually special. Or it's special only because most of the time our mind is obscured by wrong view. We're caught in some variation of self-view all the time, including the self-view that I really don't like self-view and I want to get beyond self-view. If we're caught or identified with that, that's also wrong view. And remember what I said earlier, you can't, we can't make, we don't need to make right view. It's not something that has to be constructed. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. It's something to be recognized or intuited. We're sort of intuiting that behind this struggling and this um, aggressive and frightened and neurotic relationship we have with the moment is a stillness or a silence or an emptiness or a luminosity that doesn't depend on anything. It's already there in a sense, waiting to be once again realized or relaxed into, opened up to, and to the degree that that happens, then, then all of a sudden the world becomes Dhamma instead of our ordinary world. And when the world becomes Dhamma, then our conditioning becomes transformed. It's it's sort of because our conditioning, the way our personality is conditioned, depends on wrong view. Like all of, not all, but maybe most of our conditioning has arisen out of Mark, the self, seeing the world from that perspective, seeing things in terms of what I want, what I don't want, and what I don't care about. So when the mind isn't seen from that place, seeing things, you know, in that clear, mirror-like way, just reflecting the way it is, <coughs> then that's a whole different world, literally. And so it's a radical reconditioning of the mind. And the more moments of that kind of reconditioning, the more the old patterns begin to be weaker, less seductive, less easy for the mind to fall into, and it's more easy, more often, that the mind is able to be free, Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha, the beautiful qualities, beautiful qualities that a human being can express, like kindness, and happiness, joy, and a sense of non-separateness. But not in a contrived way, like like that's a philosophical belief I have that we're all one. 
it's not that at all. It's just the natural sense of unity or belonging or wholeness that's completely uncontrived, not philosophical, not a stance that I'm taking, you know, that we're all one. I'll bet you a hundred bucks. We <laughs> <laughs> have to get rid of those heathens that think otherwise, you know. So this is nice to have a sense that these refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, they're not actually specific to Buddhism or any, course, any religion. The whole point, like if it's actually a refuge, dependable, unconstructed, not something the human mind constructs or creates, that means it can't be specific to any philosophy or practice. It's just the nature of things. That's what makes it a refuge, that it's available, not something that somebody has to create. Because once, if it's something we create, then it's something we have to defend. You know, defend against things that take it apart. This is, uh, I sent out a couple links to articles. One was a little messy. I sent you uh, one link that I don't think you could open, so I just cut and pasted it. So if you didn't see that, it's there now. That's the Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Sumedho's article from his little booklet, Now is the Knowing. Yes, the first chapter is on the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, it's called. It's quite nice, so I set that up. And then I also sent out this link that Katie had sent me from him, a children's book, The Wisdom of No Escape, and she's just talking about taking refuge. This is a paragraph from that. So for us, taking refuge means that we feel that the way we live is to cut the ties, to cut the umbilical cord, and alone start the journey of being fully human. So for me, this, and she, the earlier paragraph, if you haven't read it yet, she's talking about how we come into the world alone, we die alone. She's really making this point. And I think the point she's making is this, and she's going to go here in a minute, is sort of stepping out. She uses the image of Alice falling down the hole, Alice in Wonderland, falling down that hole, that free fall. And it's really that feeling of leaving behind the mind's attachment to concept or to meaning. And see, this world of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the mind is not dependent on meaning. That's one of the easiest ways to recognize when we're going toward one world, the world of attachment to meaning, dependency on meaning, dependency on concept, versus the other world. Is this the mind being relatively free of its dependence on concepts? So there may be concepts floating around, but the mind isn't grasping, isn't trying to get anything from the concept. Does it need the concept? Because it has another way of being with things as they are. The Buddha knows how to be with Dhamma. <clears throat> it doesn't need to create this edifice of concept, conceptual meaning, to sort of explain Dhamma the way it is to itself. That's what happens when we're coming out of the self-centered point of view, wrong view. So she says, for us, so for us, taking refuge means that we feel that the way to live is to cut the ties to cut the umbilical cord and alone start the journey of being fully human. 
without confirmation from others. Taking refuge is the way that we begin cultivating the openness and the good-heartedness that allow us to be less and less dependent. We might say we shouldn't be dependent anymore. We shouldn't. We should be open. But that isn't the point, right? Because that would be forcing. That would be just another self-centered approach. The point. This is Pema Children again. The point is that you begin where you are. You see what a child you are, and you don't criticize that. You begin to explore with a lot of humor and generosity towards yourself. All the places where you cling. And every time you cling, you realize, ah, this is where my mindfulness and my tonglin, this is that practice of taking in what's difficult and giving away what's good. And everything that I do, my whole life is a process of learning how to make friends with myself. That would be a nice way to think of Buddha knowing Dhamma. It's like how to make friends with the way that it is. Because all of this dependence on meaning, on concept, on describing, telling ourselves what's happening, is of course a protective mechanism that doesn't really work. Making friends with myself. On the other hand, this need to cling this need to hold the hand, this cry for mom, also shows you that that's the edge of the nest. Stepping through right there, making a leap, becomes the motivation for cultivating loving kindness. You realize that if you can step through that doorway, you're going forward. You're becoming more of an adult, more of a complete person, more whole. In other words, the only real obstacle is ignorance. So this is, I think, helpful in terms of understanding the refuges as a description of how to practice with our life. You know, we're practicing Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha, and we're, and we're practicing recognizing when it's something different than that, when we're suffering human beings struggling to be free. So when we are struggling to be free, that can be, like she says, that can be seen as the edge of the nest. That struggling itself is the gateway. So can we, because, you know, when we're struggling, it's, of course, triggering the self-view quite strongly. When we're struggling, we feel very strongly that I should do something about this struggling. I should hide from it if I'm exhausted. I should stand up and fix it if I'm not exhausted. But instead, you know, from the point of view of Buddha knowing Dhamma, there's nothing to do except Buddha knowing Dhamma. So it's that clear, uninhibited, non-reactive awareness knowing that there's this struggle, this experience. But now we're not seeing it in terms of the meaning we've been giving it, that I'm struggling with my life. This is a difficult experience for me. We're not seeing it from that, with that dependence on that, those concepts or that, those ideas. Instead, it's just what it is. You know, whatever that struggle is, that's all it is. And we, we don't believe it, but it's really true that all of the solidity 
all of the oppressive solidity and weight of life is that very thin shell of conceptual meaning. It's the constructions, the conceptual constructions that make life hellish at times and make life really beautiful and then, of course, our dependence on that beauty at other times. But in either case, we're creating dukkha, whether it's a really pleasant experience that we feel take personally and grasp a really difficult experience that we want to get rid of and struggle. And you can even, we can think about uh, three refuges in terms of the Eightfold Path. You know, the Buddha, in a sense, is like the goal or wisdom. You know, the Eightfold Path, you probably remember when we covered it in the Buddhist Studies program, for those who were here for that, uh, it gets divided into three parts. There's the wisdom part, Panya, which involves right view and right intention, wisdom and right intention, or sometimes even translated as right thought, you know, thoughts of kindness, thoughts of letting go, renunciation, thoughts of compassion, caring, thoughts of generosity. So these, that category is just considered the wisdom category, panya. And then there's the category of sila, right conduct, you know, and so in terms of the Eightfold Path, it's right speech and right action. And, uh, right speech, right action, what am I forgetting? Hmm? Oh, right livelihood, thanks. And then, uh, and then, uh, uh, samadhi, so right mindfulness, right effort, and right concentration. So these three parts of panya, sila, samadhi, you can see, upanya is Buddha, samadhi could be seen as Dhamma and Sila can be seen as uh, Sangha, right? Because Sangha is the beautiful expression. It's like how life, the personality manifests when Buddha knows Dhamma. So when wisdom sees things as they are, then Sangha, that's the Sila, that's harmony, non-harming, living in a beautiful way. The more tricky one is samadhi and dhamma. But the way to think of dhamma is really our teacher. That's why in a superficial sense, dhamma means the teachings of the Buddha. You know, so if you go to Buddhist countries, when they take refuge in the, in the Buddha and then the dhamma, when they take refuge in the dhamma, they often think about it in terms of the teachings, protecting the teachings. For people who aren't doing a lot of practice, it's just only on that level. And so for us, you know, it's important to understand that part of taking refuge in Dhamma is like uh, part of the Buddhist studies curriculum are these 37 wings to awakening. You know, we have the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Seven Factors of Awakening and the Five Faculties and the Five Powers and the four exertions and uh, four bases of power and this is the first one, oh, the four foundations. I think that ends up to 37. But this is sort of like the Buddhist curriculum and we cover this in the Buddhist studies class and, you know, this is just a conceptual map, you know, overlapping teachings. 
but these teachings then are sort of directing the mind toward things as they are. That's the whole point of these teachings. And in order to see things as they are, we need that balance of samadhi. There is no seeing things as they are without samadhi. And samadhi is the training of balance. We're learning how to balance the mind, bring the mind into a beautiful balance. So it makes sense, I think, to connect Dhamma with this process. Dhamma is like using experience as a teacher. So that's what we do with samadhi practice when we're bringing the mind into balance. We just use the actual experience of the moment to balance the mind. Right? We use the breath, we use the body, we could use anything, basically. Ultimately, what supports samadhi is the steadiness of view. Like, it's not being confused with the experience, with the raw stuff of our experience. If we cannot be confused with the raw stuff of our experience with some continuity, samadhi arises. The balance of mind comes from that not being confused. So when we, like, take a particular one of those teachings, you know, like the seven factors of awakening, well, it's just a description, one description of balance. In fact, all of them are just highlighting some aspect that supports balance. But it's just a more sophisticated way of talking about, or highlighting really, you know, how the mind can be present without being confused by what's arising, what's coming and going. So the Buddha, you know, this ultimate subject, this goal, right, because the, uh, it's sort of this dynamic. These three things work together, just like they do in the Eightfold Path. So the Buddha, in a way, is the ultimate subject. But what reveals the Buddha is the Dhamma. It's like we don't really have a chance to realize the Buddha, but by realizing or recognizing how we can be present with life, that says something about the mind that can be present. You know how that is. Like we often hear people sharing about a really challenging situation that maybe ten years ago you would have gotten really worked up. But now something happened, you know, the boss criticizes you or you get really sick or have some painful experience. But there's just a lot of equanimity, a lot of space in the mind. And so you see how it was that Dhamma, that particular experience that arose in the space of the mind that revealed the Buddha, revealed the empty space of the mind, revealed the heart or mind that is fundamentally, essentially unobstructed or free. It was that little situation where you stubbed your toe and the mind didn't freak out, didn't make a big deal out of it. So we need the Dhamma to realize the Buddha. We need the world. This is like uh, later schools of Buddhism made a big deal out of, you know, emptiness and form. Form and emptiness. But they, we need both to realize the freedom. And then the, the expression of that is the sort of the archetype of the saint, the person who can go anywhere 
and be lovely. You know, any situation that can be a queen and have all the luxuries that it not be confusing to them. You know, just go to the head. They could be impoverished or in a war zone and they, they're still a lovely human being in that situation. They express sangha and sila. I'm trying to share a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho. Just uh, getting a sense of how the three work together, how Buddha and Dhamma Sangha work together. This is from Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind in the Way. Really, I find it a, a useful reference book for the whole path. And he has a chapter in the Three Refuges. First, I want to read a little bit what he says about the Buddha. If anybody who has a copy wants to scan it and uh, scan this chapter, it's not that long, it's about 10 pages, I think, we can send it out to everybody. So here he says, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we are taking refuge in what is wise. The word Buddha is really a term for human wisdom. It means the one who knows the truth, or that which knows. If you call yourself a Buddhist, you can think you've joined a religion. Or you can think of yourself as one who's taking refuge in wisdom. The way to be wise is by reflecting on and contemplating things. Wisdom is something that is already here. It is not something you'll get. It's something you use. It's wrong to think you're going to become wise by meditating. Meditation is the way of learning how to use the wisdom that's already there. I find that really a useful instruction. So when we're sitting, we're just doing daily life practice, we're putting our wisdom to work. We're intuitively realizing, grounding in the Buddha and using it to see things clearly, to see Dhamma, and to let the seeing of Dhamma transform our conditioning so we become more and more like Sangha. You know, living in a harmonious, beautiful way, a lovely way. It's not something you get, it's something you use. It's wrong to think you're going to become wise by meditating. Meditation is a way of learning how to use the wisdom that's already there. So in meditation, you're contemplating and reflecting on the Dhamma, or the truth of the way it is. You're actually using wisdom while you're doing that. Wisdom is not something you don't have but it's something that maybe you don't always use or aren't always aware of. So you probably know, or heard, some of you at least have heard that one of the things that's chanted regularly in especially in Theravada Buddhist circles, are the qualities of Dhamma. And you can see how it really points to the here and now, not the teachings of the Buddha, not something conceptual, but something non-conceptual here and now. So the chant, the first word is sandatiko, which means imminent or here and now. So Dhamma is here and now. It's already here. Akaliko 
means it's not bound by time or it's timeless. And this is important because what we're seeing about the here and now isn't like, I could say, well, I'm at common ground here and now. And that seems like bound by time because I won't be at common ground later. But if we go beyond the I'm at common ground and this is what I was trying to point to earlier. When we open to Dhamma, there's a recognition of it as being timeless. So this isn't like theoretical. It really has that, like we're actually recognizing something about the present moment that's always the same. And it's not to say that the, there aren't elements that are changing. Obviously, that's part of what's always the same, is this dynamic ephemeral nature of Dhamma. I remember even as a little kid, I've told this story before, some of you have heard it, but just sitting in the bathtub, I don't remember how old I was, but maybe mid-elementary years, like eight or nine. I just remember kind of naturally sliding into a meditative state, sitting in the bathtub. And I would, this is sort of what was happening. I was sort of going from an ordinary state of consciousness to a more refined state of consciousness and just intuiting Dhamma. And it was like, I had the sense that it was sort of a different reality. You know, kind of one moment, and it's like, that's, that's the side of the bathtub. You know, I'm sitting here. You know, it's warm or whatever. And then the next moment, there's a certain quality This exactly as being, as being is described here, this sort of an imminent quality, here and now. The fact of here and now is something, in a sense, the mind knows, it tastes. It's actually tasting that it's here and now. Like, think about today. How many moments did we have that very direct, immediate sense of here and now? This is here and now. You know, that is that it's a perception, actually, of the present moment, like that this, this is really now. Not conceptually now as opposed to past or future, but the actual tasting, touching, knowing of now, this imminence, this timelessness. And then the third quality is ehipasiko, which is a famous phrase from the Buddha uh, that we sometimes used to to sort of encourage people to check it out. Check out what I'm saying. Try out these teachings and see for yourself what arises when you follow these instructions. But in this context, he's saying, he's really talking about that Dhamma requires that we turn toward it. And you see, that's why we could spend the whole day and be completely unaware of the here and now because we've got a lot of momentum toward our concepts of things, our ideas about things. So we have to intentionally turn toward the here and now because of our habit energy. We have to overcome the, that momentum. It's just we really like going back to our thoughts about things. It feels safe. It is literally our safe place. It's also our oppressive place. <laughs> Unfortunately, the two we haven't figured out. <laughs> yeah, it's not really that safe. So, Ehipasiko is really saying that it's discoverable if you 
if you have the intention to look, if you're willing to turn toward and look. Uh, Arjun Sumedha says, means that we have to put forward that effort to turn toward the truth, that truth. And then the, the next thing that's chanted when the monks and nuns every morning, I think every morning, possibly every night, uh, in some traditions at least, they honor the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And then when they're doing the part where they're honoring the Dhamma, this is what they're chanting. The next one is Opanayiko, which means turning inward, inward towards peace, towards release. So, you know, as we, as the Buddha turns towards Dhamma, opens the Dhamma the way that it is, the mind has to leave behind concepts. Only concepts can agitate the mind. You know, I have to think about somebody who did something to me. That's a lot of con- conceptual baggage before I can get tight. But when we turn towards things as they are, it's a releasing towards silence, towards stillness, towards peace. And this is what this next phrase points to, toward the peace within the mind. Ajahn Sumedho says, Dhamma doesn't take us into fascination, into excitement, romance, and adventure, but leads to Nibbana, to calm, to silence. And then the last phrase that's chanted is, Pachitang Vahitabo Vinhuhi. And Ajahn Sumedho says, this means that we can only know Dhamma through direct experience. It's like the taste of honey. If someone else tastes it, we still don't know its flavor. We may know the chemical formula or be able to recite all the great poetry ever written about honey, but only when we taste it for ourselves do we really know what it is like. It's the same with Dhamma. We have to taste it. We have to know it directly. So these, uh, you have this article. This is from that uh, chapter in the little booklet, Now is the Knowing. And you might want to, just for homework, and maybe even to prepare for the small groups next week, you might want to just take up one or more of these different aspects of Dhamma, the imminence of it, the uh, timeless quality of it, the fact that we have to turn toward it. Or as Pema Children, you, in her little article, it's quite nice about all these similes of you know, stepping out of the nest into the free fall. Like that willingness to go beyond what's familiar. But it's right here, you know, going beyond our sort of overlays into the unknown, into the Buddha knowing Dhamma. And to notice the peace and the stillness that comes from that. And that we can read, and it can be quite useful to read, but only if it's an encouragement to actually do this <coughs> this work of opening. So last week I mentioned, you know, encourage people to uh, create a little ritual or a little form that you like, with a strong emphasis on that you like, that's what you should do. It's something that feels good to do. 
something you really enjoy doing. It can be quite simple. And uh, I mentioned, I think last week, those of us, when we were listening to Tara Brock together and she had that little ritual of tying the knots, we're going to do something like that the last week for those who like that sort of thing. But for the others, you can work with it. <laughs> Disliking is like this. <laughs> but in any case, at home you get to do what you like. So find something, a way of reminding yourself. You know, you might write something down in, in a neat way and put it somewhere about, you know, your own formulation of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, or just even one of them. Or some aspect of the teaching that, that uh, resonates with you that inspires. Remember that formulation from Yanapanika um, Tara that we talked about the first week. I can't quote it exactly, but he talks about these four elements of refuge, like the, the necessity of a personal commitment. You know, there's, we're generating a sense of willful effort because we don't want to just keep doing what we've always done, getting what we've always gotten. We're changing um, the trajectory of our life. So there's this personal act or personal commitment, and it's, of course, directed toward freedom. However we understand freedom, you know, sometimes we have a pretty intuitive sense, deep sense of freedom, what that is, the imminence of it. And sometimes it's pretty idealistic, superficial you know, romantic, heaven up in the clouds, something like that. But that's okay. It's just, you know, it's just going to be as sophisticated as it is in any moment. So a personal effort towards freedom based on our actual experience, so grounded in what we have directly experienced in our life, not just hopeful thinking, but coming out of our direct experience inspired by faith. Now here, faith initially is what we don't know, don't yet know, but seems reasonable based on what we do know, or seems reasonable because we trust the person who's saying it, like a lot of what the Buddha said makes sense, this stuff I haven't directly experienced, but but a lot of the other things he says I do know directly from my experience. So I'm inspired by these other things he says, even though I haven't directly experienced it. And that that provides the energy, and you see it's a cycle. Then we're willing to make that personal commitment, and on and on like that. So that's another thing you can remember in terms of creating something, like tap into these four things. And you have the link to Nyanapanika Tara's article on the three refuges. You know, so this willful or this personal commitment, Again. directed towards freedom based on knowledge or direct experience inspired by faith the possibility you know, and uh, I remember a really inspiring talk by Joseph Goldstein where he really made the point that we need this goal that, that's not, I mean if that's all we had we, it wouldn't be very good but we need this sense of possibility a lot of people um, especially people who've been practicing for a while, they tend to uh, want to. And there's even teachers I feel are kind of teaching in this way, where they they want to be really careful about being idealistic. 
you know, making Nirvana something special. So they tend towards, like, well, this, these teachings are just really good ways of working with your mind, which is true, and you can really handle the difficulties of life so much better if you do this practice. But they lose this possibility of what the Buddha actually taught, which is of freedom. It's the real ending of dukkha in the mind. So to somehow, I think it's important to, to have that, you know, from our teachers, to kind of hold that, and, and then maybe later from our actual experience of what real freedom tastes like, feels like, in the heart. And then there's a lot of energy that comes from that, even though we may not be able to live out of that freedom all the time. We can aspire to that. So keep those four things in mind. And then the last thing I'll, I'll just mention, and we'll talk about this next week, I'll send out the sutta, the discourse, where the Buddha talks about the simile of the raft. This is one of the ways he talked about the Dhamma, and specifically the Dhamma meaning the teachings. That it's uh, these 37 wings that I mentioned earlier tonight. You know, we want to use them to get across the flood. We don't want to get attached to them, get attached to the different methodologies. But we definitely, we don't want to be afraid of it. We want to take it up in a pragmatic way. So that's what we'll talk about next week. And we'll also have small groups next week. But I want to save some time for people's comments and questions. We have about 15 minutes. So any questions or comments about the sit tonight, or what I've said, or your own study that you'd like to bring up with the group? What comes to mind? Yeah, Roger. Um, so you're talking a lot about Buddha uh, going and in the last week or two, you know, there's been some new stories that have been developed. So I want to speak for myself and hold on to that. It's painful. So I'm not quite sure how to. Well, I guess it depends, you know, like where you're starting. I mean, if the mind is already upset. Excuse me. I haven't figured out how to block this thing very well. Um, if the mind's upset, you know, it's, it's, it will be really important that you don't pull out the practice to make the pain go away. And that's generally going to be our tendency when we're feeling oppressed by something, feeling upset by something, that we want the practice to save us. I'm kind of being provocative a little bit. And then that throws the whole thing off. So um, the first thing we have to lose is that sense that, um, that there's somebody that needs to be saved because that's wrong view right from the start. You know, there's somebody here who's suffering because of the messiness of life, the meanness of life, and I really would like some relief from this. And so we, the mind has already posited somebody being oppressed. So it would be hard to take a fresh look at that. So 
So the first thing we have to do is we have to turn toward that pain of the messiness. We have to make peace with it to some degree. We have to get comfortable with feeling upset or feeling hurt, feeling disgusted or whatever the feeling is by that event that we've heard about. We have to let it move. We have to let it be Dhamma. And so the way we kind of find Buddha knowing Dhamma in that case is generally the easiest way is Buddha will be revealed by completely opening to what you're feeling and being undefended with it. Because it's only Buddha that can do that. It's only that nature of the heart, nature of the mind, that can really be present with that yucky feeling. You know, that, that kind of maybe nihilistic or angry or whatever emotional feeling of the world being screwed up, people being bad. And so what, where is the mind, what is the mind or heart that can really be with that? in a non-reactive way. So that's how we that's how we practice, you know. And then then once the Buddha is there, then we can have a sense of what this is as dhamma instead of what it is from my personal point of view. And uh, it's this sort of dynamic of on the one hand feeling moved and touched, but on the other hand not being oppressed by it. And that's really the, the dynamic. If you find yourself being uh, free from the oppression, but not really caring much about it, then you then we'll probably have slid into some kind of suppression. But if you feel moved, like very alive, uh, you know, there with it, then not, the mind's not dependent on it, not dependent on being moved, not dependent on fixing it, not dependent on not wanting to get dirty, you know, not wanting to be involved, wanting to stay away from it. So if the mind is really in that nimble place. If there's something that I specifically should do, the mind's willing to do it. If there's nothing for me to do in this particular case, the mind's okay with that too. It's okay just being with the yucky feeling if that's what's come up. Yeah, I think, yeah. And especially the bigger the, the issue, we may not be successful. But that doesn't mean it isn't good work. You know, it's like sometimes our work is really messy and we don't, in a sense, succeed. But it's like in Payment Children's simile, you know, we we're, we're kind of know there's an edge there. But that can be like, knowing that this is an edge can be really good. Even though we're not willing to step beyond the edge. But we know there's an edge. We're willing maybe to circle, you know, I don't know if you could circle the edge of a nest, but you know what I mean? Like stay close to it, keep touching it. We know it's there. So that that's how we get more familiar with it. And then smaller insults maybe we can practice better with than the things that cut deep kind of bring up some of that existential pain. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Yeah, Katie. Maybe a little louder. I 
think because it wasn't super personal, I was able to let my heart break and then feel connected to the woman who probably just wanted to feel connected also. the thing with insight is that by definition really like a deeper insight will be naturally and even effortlessly generalized so if we learn something in one particular situation then it starts to show up in all these other places like your example Katie which is learning that it's okay for the heart to break in fact it might be really healing for the heart to break and really deadening to uh, kind of hide or to protect the heart that's breaking or suppress the heart that's breaking. Because that's a, that's a powerful realization that uh, the breaking heart doesn't do any damage. The heart can't be broken in the way that we might imagine. It feels like it's breaking, but it's kind of expressing its resilience, actually. Yeah. Very bad. I don't know Yeah, I think that's right. If you didn't hear Mary Beth, she, she was just saying when something really bad happens, that sometimes that can be a time of insight, and it can also be a time of, of you know, um, really, I don't know, toxic is the right word, but painful and uh, you know like where the person has to suppress the pain or repress the pain bury it somewhere because they can't and and then the energy that it takes for a mind to disconnect can be really toxic and difficult for that person in the long term so it's like not a strategy we'd want to take up but sometimes it just happens that way and and especially for people who've been practicing and have uh, some faith in the opening process, then when something really big happens and they have enough confidence, they can have powerful insight where all of the conditioning in the mind is screaming, you know, close down, run, don't let this in. But there's some basic instinct, spiritual instinct that says there isn't any running from this, you know. And... uh, and going out, going through it, and out the other end. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I had this sort of conceptual uh, attempt in my mind to understand some of what you're saying, and, and then throughout the night, trying to sort of decide what distinguishes Dr. Spark from the Knowing Down. Um, and, and I think, it would, is it safe to say that, um, very, are you saying it would be a natural response, even with thinking abandoned to smile or cry or 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 react with emotion like that to 
Well, I'm not. That's a, that's a little bit a hypothetical thing, because who would there be that's not going to conceptualize? Because you see, we already have our conditioning to conceptualize, so that's not going to go away. We're not uprooting the conceptualizing tendencies of the mind. We're just not being confused by them. Like we're understanding what they are. Right now, we tend to. Uh, we tend to assume that the conceptual overlay is reality. You know, like that, this really is common ground. But that's just a name. You know, this is not common ground. This is not Minneapolis. This isn't the United States. These are all concepts. This is not 2012. This is not summer. These are all concepts. And uh, so... We don't need to get rid of the concepts. We just want to not be confused by them. Like, what is this without being dependent or affected by all of those concepts? And that's really what Dhamma is. It's the moment not under the influence of concepts. The mind is dependent on the concepts to know the moment. It's knowing the moment in a more pure, direct way, not influenced by the concepts. Now, some concepts are useful to sort of point the mind in that way or to sort of orient the mind in that way. So then, you know, your question is like, well, how will somebody respond in that situation? And uh, they'll just be, you know, more free to do what's appropriate in that moment. And so the smiling is appropriate to smile and the crying is appropriate to cry. And they won't be confused by their response. They, they'll understand it's just what it is. And they won't need to construct a story, or if they do construct a story, they won't be so dependent on the story they construct, that the mind constructs, about what's happening, about what they're doing to respond. Or so it's just taking the friction out of the system. It's not necessarily changing the system so much. You might not... I mean... It would be interesting if we'd notice the difference, like if somebody has a really powerful insight between now and next week, and they come back next week, and the mind is, you know, profoundly more free than it was this week. You know, we might not notice, unless we're really sort of, you know, really uh, intuiting and coming from that place of Buddha, we might notice that there's very little friction in how that person is moving through space, how they respond. They're still being completely who they are, which is what they were doing this week, but now there's no, there's no friction or um, weight in them being who they are. Oh, let's see. One of you gets fully enlightened this week, and then we'll see if we can figure out who it is. It's just one of you. <laughs> <laughs> we have time for one more comment or question if anybody else has a thought. Yeah, David. One man looks great, but he's like a shot. And you get to see, he's really great. And you 
And it's a little bit like what Mary Beth is saying that uh, sometimes in crisis, really beautiful qualities, human qualities, come forward that are quite inspiring. To see what happens because the the suddenness can shock us and and basically um, shock the mind out of its strong conditioning. It's like the situation is so out of the box that our conditioning doesn't seem to fit. And, we, and we, we have to relate from a more open place because we don't have any conditioning to draw on. And there can be really powerful experiences of freedom. The trouble with those kinds of insights is that they're not so necessarily easy to integrate. And, you know, once life gets back to sort of this ordinary place. The later those people, when they find the teachings, that experience can really... Uh, accelerate the practice because they have a lot of confidence from that experience even though they haven't done the integration but that confidence gives them a lot of faith a lot of energy we should probably leave it here I forgot that Gabe were you going to talk tonight Gabe? sorry I had to tell you a lot of time (laughs) I just remembered now Gabe uh, I'll see a few words share his reflections on Donna tonight Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.